0: Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working to support the communities of plants, people, and places that make it so. This is Cultivating Place, I'm Jennifer Jewell. John Forte is an award-winning heirloom specialist garden historian, ethnobotanist, garden writer, and local foods advocate. He is the executive director of Bedrock Gardens, an artist-inspired public sculpture garden and landscape in Lee, New Hampshire, the recipient of a 2020 Award of Excellence from the National Garden Clubs. As a regional governor and biodiversity specialist for Slow Food USA, a national chapter of Slow Food, the global organization and international grassroots movement connecting food producers and consumers, John helps to champion local agriculture, farmers' markets, and traditional regional cuisine. John joins us today to share more about his 2021 compilation, The Heirloom Gardener Traditional Plants and Skills for the Modern World. A passionate and personal manifesto in which John draws on his years of experience, including his work on the garden restoration of the historic Plymouth Potuxic site and on the Slow Food Biodiversity Council. In his new book, the essays offer gardener readers an invitation to get growing, get agitating, planting seeds, and rebuilding systems in order to forge connectivity between the modern fabric of our community and the plants and historic foodways of all of our land-based pasts, from Native American to immigrant pasts. John after reading and reviewing The Heirloom Gardener, I am just, I'm really honored to be speaking with you today about these intersections wherein gardens and gardeners are contributors to solutions in our world.
1: Well, thank you. I think it came to me as something of a surprise in writing that I realized we all have an opportunity to make a difference from our own backyards. Mm-hmm. And I I never really fully thought through the power of my backyard connecting up to yours and everybody's in between until these essays came together. And I think at this point in our country, it's a great benefit to find things where there is common ground and where we can um, help heal a world that needs our participation. The joy in it is that gardening is the process that we can use and, um, and make a difference with.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you get right into all of that kind of agency uh, in, in the introduction to the book, uh, you, you write, now the urgent need for a more sustainable future is motivating new generations of home gardeners to re-examine what it means to craft a life in balance with community and environment. And r- that right there just makes my whole heart sing. But before we go there, John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move you into my traditional beginning questions and inquiries because uh, they help me to set a context that is important to the arc of how we understand gardeners and gardens, I think. So I'm going to pose to you the question I pose to every gardener. What is it that gets you out of bed in addition to what you have just said, or perhaps even summarized more uh, succinctly? What is it that gets you out of bed personally about your relationship with plants and gardens right now in your life, John?
1: Well, I think at a very basic level, when you have gardens in your life, you've cultivated beauty and engagement around you. So for me, it can start with a first cup of herbal tea in the morning, or maybe I'm going out with a cup of coffee into the garden, and I do a little weeding, um, figure out what dinner might be that I find in the garden (laughs) or the landscape. Mm -hmm. But um, all of those are engagements that I think just enrich my life and my lifestyle. I'm not in the garden that much this time of year, but my house is full of houseplants. I have... um, a blood orange blooming that's perfuming the entire house and Mm. Calamontans, these small oranges that I'm about to turn into a cordial this weekend. And the plants around me, be it indoors or out, just, uh, I would say, enrich every part of my life on a daily basis through changing seasons.
0: Yeah, okay, I like that. And so take us back a little bit to where you were born and raised, and who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a human for whom these would all be relationships and endeavors of value, John?
1: Well, I was raised in a very small town down towards Cape Cod, and honestly, I can say I was raised by a river. I just, I was drawn into a landscape Through changing tides, and I saw stone walls that ran through deep pine woods, and an ancient Roxbury russet apple tree in front of a shipwright's house from the 17th century, and a weeping mulberry that I made into a fort, uh, mossy fern glens where the springs went below the spring, uh, below the well down to the river. And they just pulled me in. It was like reading a book, but through plants and through evidence of people that had lived there before me. And I had these great neighbors, um, an old Yankee couple. Actually, she was from Florida in her youth. He was a Yankee and they lived in an arts and crafts shingle mansion up the hill from us. And they were phenomenal horticulturists. And they really taught me the love of horticulture From one perspective, and they helped me understand who'd lived there before us and why stone walls were running through what were now woodlands that used to be agricultural fields. And they piqued my interest in that fine gardening level. But then I also had grandparents who were immigrants that loved the ability to save their own seeds and cultivate the food that nourished them. beverages that they drank and really share the fruits of their labors and I saw in them a huge joy that came from that and I think all of those sorts of things came to be influences that made me see that people who gardened lived um, pretty wonderful lives.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah and all of those threads start to come together as you as you grow up and go out into the world, both educationally and professionally. I can I can see that. So, describe for listeners where you go from this, you know, idyllic and multi layered uh, childhood uh, understanding. Um, the, yeah, the multiplicity of history in your space and ways of reading and living with that?
1: Well, I would say that like most kids, we probably don't think of the place we're raised in as idyllic. Um, and for <laughs> me, I couldn't get out fast enough. I, um, mm. as a junior in high school, I left for Japan as an exchange student. And I had been working in garden centers all through my teens, and I love that work. But Japan introduced me to a whole new aesthetic and a very different sense of how you can live in the world and the ritual behind daily life and seasonal living and local and artisanal foods and just the things you surround yourself with. Um, my host mother there had said, you know, when you garden, you're always surrounded with beauty and you get to share that beauty. And and that really solidified something for me. So I thought I would shift my idea of what I would do in college uh, from studying horticulture to well, to be honest, studying journalism and feminism and introducing feminism to Japan because I wasn't really comfortable with what I saw there. And it wasn't long into college before I realized that that was not my place in the world and that plants really were still tugging at me. And this the field of ethnobotany and horticulture still fascinated me. So while I was in college, I had taken another part-time job outside of the garden centers where I worked uh, at a museum called Plymouth Plantation. And before I knew it, they had recruited me to work on a project about 17th century herbalism. And Mm -hmm. then from there, I was hired to be their first horticulturist and... Can you
0: describe for listeners who might not be familiar with Plymouth Plantation exactly what it is and its kind of mission, um, which probably has evolved over time, but you can kind of summarize that for people?
1: Well, in fact, it's evolved to the point where now Plymouth Plantation Museum is Plymouth Patuxet Museum, so that it is acknowledging the First Nations uh, settled in that region. And its mission is really to teach about life in the 17th, 17th century Plymouth Colony, which was one of the earlier settlements in America. And for me, my work there was primarily focusing on Wampanoag and colonial um, horticulture, rematriating traditional heirloom crops and um, teaching gardening as a craft from that site. Uh, that would include things like food that came from that and agriculture, um, and really exploring how other people had used plants to improve the quality of daily life. Not just the lives of the rich and famous, but real right. daily life experience in both cultures.
0: Yeah. yeah. Keep us going on this on this trajectory because it, it kind of deepens and expands along this same cleavage, as it were, in in the work of your uh, of what you, intrigues you and where you become really a leader and a leading voice. So keep going from Plymouth Plantation. How long were you there, and then where did you go from there?
1: Well, after about ten years, I of loving my work. I was recruited to uh, be the curator of historic landscapes at a museum in Portsmouth, New Hampshire called Strawberry Bank Museum. And that helped me broaden my 17th century expertise and carry it across four centuries really. Uh, Strawberry Bank is a neighborhood that was slated for demolition during urban renewal and instead it became a museum. And the gardens there ranged from native to 17th century uh, kitchen gardens and orchards, uh, formal Victorian gardens, hot house, colonial revival gardens, and even a victory garden from World War II. And those became great backdrops for modern teaching gardens that I installed as well, an ethnobotanical herb garden, a Victorian children's garden, and an heirloom community garden. And that became a really wonderful way to look at change over time in a landscape, which I always think is a valuable way to explore history. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was there, I also saw an emerging local foods movement that really needed grounding. And with the education director at the museum, I helped to start a slow food chapter for the region, knowing that museums could be a wonderful pivot point in recognizing how regional history and preservation could help imbue us with a sense of place and and really form communities around the plants and the landscapes uh, that we'd inherited as uh, uh, in, in common in that community.
0: Yeah, and I just love that confluence in your story of your your study and knowledge of skills and crafts from bygone you know centuries uh, being brought to bear on this Renaissance. And you talk about this in the book uh, very eloquently. Um, this Renaissance of people interested in um, these more authentic and common uh, ground. Communing across food and plants and culture, uh, sort of in resistance to our increasingly you know, urbanized fast food throwaway culture. And this is the quote I was going to get to a little bit earlier, but you write that at a time when it would be easy to write about all that is wrong in the world, I write this book, The Heirloom Gardener, as a celebration of this renaissance taking place in fields, backyards, and local economies around the world building upon a sense of place to promote health, happiness, and common ground. And I just went, yay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, honestly, I think we've all been holding our head in our hands a lot in recent years, and it makes it all the more important to remember that, I don't know about you, but I never expected to see year-round farmers markets again in the course of my life and in our generation. Mm. and. You know, this whole groundswell that is a, a healthy undercurrent. Mm-hmm. And I've always believed that the bigger the mainstream gets, the more room you have for an undercurrent. Ah, I and like that. It oh. just means, <laughs> thanks, it means we are getting to grow out marketplaces for things that, that just weren't available when we were younger. If you wanted mushrooms, they were canned. If you wanted peas, they were canned mm-hmm. or frozen. Yeah. And The whole way of artisanal food and local food production has just meant lots of people are forming new American industry, and it's land-based. And When you grow the food that you consume, you end up caring more about the soil quality, the water quality, and the air quality. And so it's environmentalism on your plate, really, when it comes right down mm-hmm. to it. And joy, right? <laughs> back, Enjoy. back to what you were
0: saying earlier, yes. And one of the things that really struck me about the book, and, and about your work, to be honest, John, is that this kind of excavating of this colonial time period which in many ways would be easy to say, I am not touching that with a 10-foot pole right now. Like it is, <laughs> it is full of baggage. It is full of, um, again, these things that are very problematic and traumatic and tragic in our world. And yet there is a lot of like at that intersection that you are uh, studying and celebrating and uplifting of, you know, what the local... First Nations were doing and had always been doing and what this colonial period also brought in and how we take the best of both of these skills and crafts and literacy forward into now i find really powerful
1: thank you i i really believe there are tools in all of this and as gardeners you know that you're grounded in something that came before you. You know when you cook that the recipes you've inherited from your family or the seeds that got passed down, they have a strong cultural resonance. And really with heirloom at the center of this and heirloom seeds, I've always been afraid that we throw the baby out with the bathwater too often in our culture. Mm. We are black or white or red and blue. And none of that exists in the plant world in the same way because unless you're Native American, every generation of immigrants that came here brought seeds and food ways and lifeways that have become part of the fabric of the nation. Mm-hmm. And there is an important part at looking at everybody's daily life. And too often our history has just been about perceived conquerors and the conquered. And gardens remind us that it's not about the top chef. It's not about the Olmstead experience in most people's <laughs> backyard it is what a housewife and a husbandman did to raise their family and feed them and those are common threads worth plucking up and mm. replanting mm. often especially when they preserve a cultural inheritance of seeds that are slipping away all too quickly.
0: This is Cultivating Place. John Forty is a garden historian and a historic garden leader, designer, and administrator. After overseeing teaching garden restoration projects at Plymouth Patuxet and at Strawberry Hill, both historic garden sites, he is now the executive director at Bedrock Gardens, a historic farm and garden in New Hampshire. In 2021, John's decades of learning and leading in the historic garden field came together in a beautiful compendium, The Heirloom Gardener traditional plants and skills for the modern world. In the introduction, John writes, quote, my generation of slow food thinkers and collaborators understood that we were helping to create more sustainable and flavorful models for local food systems. We never imagined that we could rebuild local agricultural markets this quickly, or that a counter revolution would be this necessary. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. Buckminster Filler once wrote, John shares, to change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. As John notes, big ag may or may not yet be obsolete, but across the nation, in little more than a decade, we have built and preserved meaningful alternatives, end quote. When we come back, we'll hear more about the plants and skills highlighted in John Forti's The Heirloom Gardener. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible by the California Native Plant Society, on a mission to support California's native plants and places using both head and heart. CNPS puts out two beautiful and informative publications throughout each year, Flora and Artemisia. The winter 2022 issue of Flora is out now and has some wonderful features, including an interview with science journalist Florence Williams about her newest work, Heartbreak and a wonderful update on searching for and finding some of our rarest plants in the aftermath of the last three years of big fires in California. For more information on becoming a member of the California Native Plant Society, on their many statewide plant-based conservation research and programming initiatives, and on receiving flora and artemisia yourself, please visit CNPS o r g that's cnps.org hey it's jennifer the warm garden season is upon us here it has been in the 80s the last two weeks and seeding is one of my favorite activities this time of year I am carefully watching my seeded tomatoes and zucchinis, zinnias, and native clovers. Several of the seeds emerged some time ago and are looking to be strapping young seedlings. Others are taking their time to germinate. One of the most miraculous events in a plant's life, and therefore in my life with my plant friends, is when they germinate from their seed form. The science of germination is long studied, and in many species, still not well understood as a process at all. How and what exactly speaks in just the right way to each different seed, coaxing them into breaking dormancy. I don't care how old I am or how many seasons of seeds I have seen the moment when I see that little germinated piece of green emerge from the soil of any seed I have sown is magical. This year, the zinnias, whose seeds remind me of the eyelashes of anime characters, do you know what I mean? They emerged first in the seed tray, and therefore the magic of summer boxes full of their brightly colored flowers, alight with butterflies, is next on the Every Season Miracles in store in the garden. Heirloom gardener, historic garden leader, and slow foods biodiversity advocate John Forty has brought his decades of historic garden learning and life together in a new compendium, the heirloom gardener. Illustrated with evocative woodblock prints by artist Mary Azarian, as we come back, John shares more about the next chapter in his career and shares some of the outstanding traditional concepts, plants, and skills included in the heirloom gardener.
1: Well, for a time um, after I left the after I left Strawberry Bank Museum. I went to the Massachusetts Horticultural Society, uh, the one of the oldest horticultural societies in the country as their director of horticulture. And I was hired to turn those society grounds into public gardens. And mm-hmm. I had a great time working on really recreating an initiative that they'd started nearly a hundred years before with the school gardens movement in America. And um, just as they'd helped to introduce it then, I started an annual conference that partnered master gardeners and garden clubs and school gardens and schools and slow food to to bring these seeds back into classrooms and explore social studies and science and math and place-based learning Um, that got kids out. And I, I worked on a children's garden there. And that was a really wonderful intersection But about five years ago, I was recruited to come up into New Hampshire to help turn this most remarkable um, private garden uh, into a public garden. It's called Bedrock Gardens, and it's a 37-acre classic New England farm that's been turned into an oasis, really, an oasis of horticulture, art, and inspiration. And those gardens have been adapted now. To be a public landscape and an edu- educational gathering space over the past, mm. especially uh, two and three years now. And it's enabled me to come back into a community that I've really cherished because it's like so many other model communities around the world, a spark that you can borrow from to pass it, just like we do milkweed seeds from our yard to the next, you know? And um, yeah. so it's, it's brought me into a, a place where as the executive director, I can help impact regional work, but also be in a, a most creative space. I, I've honestly never seen a garden quite like it and it's a pleasure.
0: That's great. I I have um, I have never been to visit, but I I certainly hope to. Uh, and it sounds like a wonderful, again, um, convergence of great horticultural ideas and public access in a way that we need more and more of. So tell me about the genesis of the heirloom gardener and uh, what catalyzed you starting to, you know, uh, bring together all of your knowledge and and w- how did you go through the process of sifting through all of, you know, metaphorically, the seeds of your life work into uh, choices that then become the table of contents, John?
1: <laughs> well... To be honest, uh, Timber Press had asked if I would write a book about garden history. And for all of the reasons you mentioned, I felt that we're living in changing times and. That, that standard history documenting famous old men wasn't what I felt like teaching now, but I never have. I've always worked in museums and gardens where it was more about teaching the craft um, that you could learn from the past. And I wanted to make a book that was culturally relevant. So I proposed that I work on this piece about heirlooms and heirloom plants um, and landscapes and traditional methods. And really find ways to um, thread that together and look at craft. I thought craft would be the overarching theme, but mm-hmm. they said that, you know, they they said, go for it. You can do that. Um, but we get to choose the title and the cover at the end of the process. And to be honest, I couldn't <laughs> imagine how to write a book, not writing to the title. And um, what I came to decide was that, if I could um, choose an alphabetic arrangement of essays, it would let me speak to a wide range of, well, meaningful plants and practices mm-hmm. that I've seen help, that I've seen communities use to help adapt to trying times through history and in the present. And so that really just morphed into a book of essays and knowing that where we are as a culture, I. And where I am in my age, <laughs> I don't love long chapters anymore or holding a heavy book over my head, but I love reading. And um, so I tried to make them into brief essays that thread together and form a narrative around um, borrowing from the past, teaching from the past to help create a more sustainable future. And that just became the thread for the book.
0: I am really appreciative of the final organization. Um, For all the things you just mentioned that um, it's nice to be able to pick it up and, you know, read one chapter, not necessarily in order and get this little sort of vitamin of knowledge and engagement. Uh, But they do come together as a whole, uh, each chapter acting as an access point into these larger themes you just mentioned. So maybe to give uh, and, and while... It is alphabetical, so there's, you know, uh chapters on, you know, sort of three A's, three Bs, several Fs. I get maybe there's three of everything, and I didn't really count that. Yes, I think there are. Three, there are three um essays for each letter of the alphabet. And sometimes they're plants, mostly they're plants, but sometimes they are larger concepts like uh kitchen gardens, or the language of flowers, or botanizing and herbaria. And I think that also kind of pulls us into macro and then back into, out into macro, you know what I mean. It pulls us back and forth between macro and micro thinking and considering Maybe pick one that you uh, are called by right now uh, to give us an example of one of the single subject chapters.
1: Hmm. Well, perhaps I'd pull out um, herbaria because, as I've mentioned, with the children's gardens that I've created and the school garden initiatives, I think it's really important that as families and communities, we find ways to engage and broaden our knowledge with horticulture. Mm-hmm. And herbaria are, they're basically backyard garden journals, but they were made by pressing botanical specimens. And it's a way that today we can borrow from uh, past practice. It was sort of like a kid making a oh, uh, a sampler. They'd stitch and they'd learn art and letters and numbers and uh, aesthetics. And in making an herbarium, you create an heirloom keepsake. Some of them go back for mm-hmm. generations. The, these days we have Emily right, Dickinson's right. herbarium and Thoreau's. And, but they also are something that I've seen in so many museum collections that will be, they'll have margin notes by young women, mostly saying mm-hmm. things like found at grandfather's grave. You, "grandmother said it's used this way medicinally or, you know, so they become the making of household botanists, but it's not something that a kid has to make alone. We can't tell our kids go out in nature and learn, but the kid can be on and iPhone at the same time we're doing this and we can be learning together and forming a beautiful artwork that's something you'd have into the future like a family recipe book. But it's also that child or any intern I ever take on or new staff persons way to learn the plants of place and their environment. So that might just be one example that crosses over between plants and skills and gardening as a craft mm-hmm. to take through life. And
0: history. It's one of the things yeah. I love.
1: Yeah. And history, because you do learn more every year of your life. And from history, I'm not going to be older and wiser with technology probably, but gardening really does make us older and wiser with every year. And this is just a great starting point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then maybe give us uh, one of your uh, single plant uh essays to to kind of show how you use those uh, in this same stream?
1: Well, there's one about apples. Uh, I think I might call it apple cart. And it starts really with the premise of an old apple called the Roxbury Russet Mm. that was present in my grandfather's urban backyard in a depleted uh, city center, but also in front of Uh, that shipwright's house from the 1690s, nearest my home uh, growing up. And this idea that if we don't know what we have to preserve, it just slips away. Like that Roxbury Russet tree in my neighbor's yard when new owners bought it and had no idea that they were cutting Mm. down a tree that had been there for nearly 400 Mm -hmm. years. It's uh, an essay that weaves together the strength of a local foods movement and ways that we affect change and preserve elements of what we hold dear and you know back to that idea that we've seen a resurgence of farmers markets something as simple as an apple as at the core no pun intended <laughs> of a local foods movement mm. means we've got local cider back and artisanal foods tied to apples and And now over 20,000 farmers markets nationwide. And there were fewer than 2000 when we started my local chapter of slow Mm -hmm. food. That's a huge um, shift. And so sometimes they're tied to things like an apple tree. Sometimes it's as simple as something like bee balm, uh, a native plant that is just the simplest reminder of how we can plant something beautiful, flavorful, fragrant, nutritious, but it's also that intersection between a kid and a hummingbird or your garden and a pot of herbal tea. Um, And the way that each plant that I speak of can be woven into sort of a more homestead lifestyle, even if you live in an urban setting or just into your daily life. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I I love very much how They are a range of plant types. So there are flowers, there are foods, there are introduced foods, there are native foods. Um, And the kind of complement that each of them make to the whole, I think, comes out across the entirety of the book, that it isn't black and white, it isn't either or, it is an and also uh, that leads to the great diversity of, you know, farmers and their expression of this work, or even, you know, gardener farmers, and, but also leads to the greatest kind of self-supporting or um, positive feedback loop of biodiversity, of people, of plants, of ways of knowing them and caring for them.
1: Exactly. Thank you. I I feel sometimes it all can seem so daunting to people. Um, And I've always loved the Thomas More quote where he said, uh, where he writes that the ordinary arts we practice every day at home are of more importance than their simplicity might suggest. You know, I think what we do every day makes a difference. And even if You still go out and eat a ho-ho, or you, um, you know, it doesn't, if what you do every day is build a little bit more into your backyard and your kitchen table, or you don't throw away as much food, or you help an heirloom seed live on in your community, that's just, it's a part of your daily life. And that ultimately makes the biggest difference to me.
0: I really like the quote as well that you have on that um, that entry of Applecart
1: uh, by Wendell Berry. Do you want to read that? I think is it the the um, the quote where he suggests that essential wisdom accumulates yes. in the community as much as fertility builds in the soil.
0: This is cultivating place. John Forty is a garden historian and a historic garden leader, designer, and administrator. He is currently the executive director of the Historic Bedrock Gardens, a farm and garden in New Hampshire. In 2021, John put his decades of learning into a new compendium of essays entitled, The Heirloom Gardener, Traditional Plants and Skills, for the modern world. When we come back, we'll hear more from John about how relearning and sharing traditional plant and garden skills builds not only better gardens, but better communities. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So every year, the third week in April, that week that contains the beautiful Earth Day celebrations, is also the annual California Native Plant Week, celebrating the incredible diversity of flora who make this incredibly diverse physical region their home. California hosts approximately 6,500 species, subspecies, and varieties of plants that occur naturally in this state, and many of these are found nowhere else in the world. Some are adapted to unique habitats or harsh conditions, like fire and drought and heat, or high elevations and snow and ice and wind. And some occur in such low numbers or have been so impacted by human influence that they are at risk of permanent extinction from the wild. Many of you listening out there might not be from California. And so here is my challenge to you this week. Write or comment on Instagram or Facebook to me where you live and let me know how many native plants called the region in which you live home and you can decide how to designate that region. Maybe it's the political boundaries of a state. Maybe it's the political boundaries of a county. Maybe it's your backyard. Maybe it's the general ecosystem where you live. In any event, I would love to know, what is your region and how many native plants call their home? While California Native Plant Week might be coming up here, the fact is, This generous planet is all of our homes. Let's celebrate them all. Every week, every day should be native plant celebration. For anyone who writes in with where you live, the number of native plants in your region, and maybe you might want to throw in your favorite of these plant friends in this spring season, you write in and I will shout out your dedication in the podcast the third week of April, just in front of Earth Day. How about it? Write in cultivatingplace at gmail.com or just put a comment on Instagram at cultivating underscore place and I will shout out your place and your beloved native plants in the third week of April. Heirloom gardener, garden historian, and biodiversity advocate John Forty has brought his decades of historic garden learning and living together in a new compendium, The Heirloom Gardener, illustrated by Mary Azarian. We're back now to our conversation with John about his life in heirloom gardening and his career in historic gardens, as well as the outstanding old plants and skills included in his recent book, The Heirloom Gardener. As we come back, we're discussing the importance of not only learning about traditional plants and skills, but of sharing that knowledge that we have been gifted generously forward with others. And of course, that that is predicated on the fact that we share that knowledge, that we we are communicating and engaging with each other and saying, um, oh, did you know that? that tree is 400 years old and it's a historic tree that this, you know, this is how you might prepare dandelion for medicinal uses of, um, of a, of a sharing and a listening that is open-minded and kind of open source.
1: I so agree. And it's, it's really a big part of what all of this does is build community. Uh, Michael Pollan Mm -hmm. likes to say that farmers markets are the new community gathering spaces, but we all know that, you know, I have neighbors around me of all stripes. I'm sure Um, we don't get into it much, but we share seeds and tomatoes Mm -hmm. and cordials and uh, homegrown tomato sauce. And those are the sorts of things that with each thing that's shared back and forth or just the seeds on the wind again, it's, helping build community in a time when a lot of people don't know community they are Mm -hmm. behind their blue screens or their you know red or blue causes and i i think it's just a critical time for us to find you know, that concept that I write about of a dooryard garden that was sort of your public-facing garden Mm -hmm. as a place to intersect with your neighbors and your community, put your best foot forward, and maybe more utilities out in your backyard with um, the gardens you keep for food and medicine. Um, But there's a place for intersect in a garden, not just with people, but that whole reminder that we live in habitat, and habitat's just another version of community. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what is really at the core of the book for me is our gardens become an opportunity to build a personal habitat, a space that really reflects our life as art, our life as a part of a continuum on that soil where we live, and a a place that we will leave to another generation, hopefully improved by our presence there. But it's that habitat that we live our daily lives in, back to that uh, idea of what we do in our daily life, making the biggest difference.
0: Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned that, or early in the conversation, that it was in the putting together of the essays that, you know, you actually gained more and more confidence and confirmation of, of the importance of the impact of our gardens. Were there other notable findings or surprises to you in things you learned or insights you gained, uh, in, in, in putting the essays together and finishing the book, John?
1: Well, foremost, I would say that, um, the pandemic proved a wonderful time to have a book deadline and really live out my daily <laughs> life in the garden, on the computer, in the kitchen. You know, it was a, it was definitely a more homebound time. And I think what I was learning in that is that for so many of us uh, as a nation, we were really reevaluating the place we had come to. Uh, and when we are, some of us, grounded at home more often than in the workplace as we had formerly known it, Um, we regain a connection to our daily rhythms, our seasonal rhythms. And I think it was both in writing and in experience during that time that I just came to so deeply appreciate that the rhythm that living in consort with nature instead of thinking we're dominating it provides, you know, I think sometimes we impose our gardens on a landscape. I spent more time watching how the gardens evolved, how my landscape evolved and, you know, a plan, a pruning project around making a seasonal wreath or a seasonal dish, Um, you know, finding myself more in sync. And I think that's, It was an important time for reflection for many of us in that way.
0: Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, as we know, uh, millions of people returned to or came to uh, the space and act of gardening in um, in important ways that I hope uh, many of which are are held onto. Uh, And so that takes me to you know if. If you beyond what we've talked about and and affirming and cementing the importance of our gardens, are there other takeaways or calls to action that you would like to include for listeners um, from from your experience with the book and and even the contents of the book?
1: Sure. Well, uh, clearly heirloom is a constant thread that runs through this book. And I think it's not always evident to people what heirloom means. Um, Typically it means that a plant's been handed down through at least three human generations. But to me, it also means that they are our common cultural inheritance. People in generation after generations for thousands and thousands of years have handed them down and they are genetically diverse and really most often the best regional varieties to grow in our backyards. But over the last hundred years, we've lost over 90% of the genetic diversity among the food crops that fed the world. Um, You know, it might seem like we have everything available to us in a supermarket, but there might only be seven varieties of cucumber versus hundreds in the past. And the apple that your community was famous for has disappeared for something that's being shipped from China. And we're seeing a lot of open pollinated seeds that are genetically diverse, meaning also you can save their seed being replaced by hybrids, which are genetic clones and GMO crops that have been really mostly selected by agribusiness and the chemical companies for shipping thousands of miles and keeping in storage indefinitely, surviving heavy chemical inputs in the land. And, you know, I think we've all been learning in the course of our lives that we those processed foods are not the healthiest way to live. And when we can take in food that has been grown to full ripeness in our backyard, science is helping show that sometimes those foods will have as much as 70% greater nutritional value than the food that was harvested unripe and shipped a few thousand miles. So I love to take the idea of heirloom as a strong forward movement, not just a backward preservation movement um, and find the many ways that that can apply. You know, when I was at Strawberry Bank, we found seeds in the walls of a house of a bean that it turns out went back over 1,500, well, about 1,500 years in that neighborhood, right through onto the Victory Garden movement during World War II. To me, it's taking things like that and preserving those heirloom seeds, getting every community to rally around the things they know of place and restore them so that every chef wants to grow them, every farmer wants to grow them, every backyard gardener, but again, finding the ones that bring you joy in the process too and and enrich the biodiversity where we live.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that story, wow. You know, as you, think about the book, out for about a year now, and you look forward to your work there in New Hampshire. Is there anything you would like to add to, to share with listeners?
1: Well, we spoke a little bit about the Victory Garden movement. And I think building on that same kind of inertia that was present then, you know, the nation turned on a dime and came together as families to really grow almost half the nation's produce in backyard gardens. I would like to think that books like this, conversations like this, programs like yours, help us reclaim um, some national unity. And I've really loved, uh, I've been giving talks all over the country and out in the world around the book and watching where it's going. And I think it's such a pleasure to see it received in communities that are nothing like one another, but they see something worth, you know, they see seeds worth planting in their own communities again in that. And so I just look forward to continuing to take that out into the world it's been kind of mind-blowing for me the books are gone into its fourth printing since it came out last summer and um it's been on a you know amazon top three selling garden books since it came out and i you know i've never even bought anything from amazon so go to your local bookstore (laughs) but it's um it's just a really a, a great time i think to be Assessing where pandemic and politics have left us and start fresh. You know, that's a thing gardeners have always known is every spring gives you a new chance to start fresh. And I love taking this book out into the world as as that opportunity to start fresh again.
0: Thank you very much for being a guest on the program. It's been really a treat.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for your part in it as well.
0: John Forte is an award-winning heirloom specialist, garden historian, ethnobotanist, garden writer, and local foods advocate. He is executive director of Bedrock Gardens, an artist-inspired public sculpture garden and landscape in Lee, New Hampshire. Bedrock Gardens reopens for the season in May. John joined me today to share more about his 2021 compilation, The Heirloom Gardener traditional plants and skills for the modern world. A passionate and personal manifesto in which John draws on his years of experience, including his work at the historic Plymouth-Patoxic Garden Restoration and Slow Food Biodiversity Council. The essays offer garden readers an invitation to get growing, to get agitating and planting seeds and rebuilding systems in order to forge connectivity between the modern fabric of our community and the plants and historic foodways of all of our land-based pasts, from Native American to immigrant pasts. This collection introduces and or reminds readers of age-old skills for a more more directly lived life. From the distillation of floral essences, to the uses of kelp, to the relationship between the Algonquin culture's word for the fruit that in English is known as strawberry, but in the Algonquin language is known as heartberry, being related to the heart health associated with the fruit. Most importantly, the heirloom gardener, which is amplified by beautiful images, by Mary Azarian encourages us to upset the apple cart of mass production and commodification and look back to the many streams of land-based wisdom still available to us in order to find a better way forward. Join us again next week when, in honor of California Native Plant Week, which is the third week of April every year, we look at an exceptionally long human and plant relationship in conversation with Deb Small and Rose Ramirez, who, in collaboration with the California Native Plant Society, are on a mission to Sage the World, an education and advocacy campaign on behalf of their ancient indigenous relationship with sacred white sage, Salvia Apiana. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society. For more information and many images of the lovely woodblock prints by Mary Azarian, which round out John Forte's heirloom gardener, head on over to cultivatingplace.com and look for this week's show notes under the podcast tab, all at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, with tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.